Father, we thank you for your word to us in these two chapters. We pray that we might clearly hear what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. Do you feel weak? I feel weak. I feel physically weak, uh, recovering from COVID. I feel mentally and emotionally weak. Bring on some spring and some time off work at Easter. I feel spiritually weak, vulnerable to Satan's attacks, conscious of my own sin. And not just me, my, my family feels weak as we recover together and just as we struggle with the daily grind of work, school, family, church life. And my church feels weak, no offence, um, but, but as I think of us, there aren't that many of us. We don't always get along. We're tired, we're busy, we're worn down. We come with all sorts of struggles, failings and faults. I feel weak. And we feel weak. And that doesn't sit very comfortably. I turn to the apostles, to David, to the prophets in scripture, and they all seem so strong. I turn to Christian biographies and they all seem so strong. I remember churches and Christians in the past and they seem so strong in what I remember of them. But I feel weak and we feel weak. And it doesn't sit comfortably because we're meant to be God's army, aren't we? His holy nation, his royal priesthood, his special possession, Peter tells us. We're meant to be glorious, strong, powerful, mighty. So why do we feel so weak? Why do we feel so weak? Well, hopefully these two chapters on Gideon will encourage us this morning. And we began our series in Judges three weeks ago. Uh, by seeing Israel's fall into sin as they failed to obey God's command to drive out the nations in Canaan. And that raised all sorts of tricky questions. We were picking a few of them apart uh, with Dan last week. But we've seen this, this cycle and um, that Israel entered be played out three times now with Othniel, with Ehud and with Deborah and Barak. So the people sinned. God gave them to their enemies who oppressed them. They cried out to God in their suffering. He heard them and sent them a judge, a deliverer, who rescued them, ruled over them and brought them peace. But as soon as the judge died, it was back to square one. They turned away from God again. This morning we find ourselves with Gideon and we'll split his story into two parts. We've got the, the up trajectory today, chapters six and seven, God's raising up of Gideon and deliverance of Israel through him. And next week, we'll look at chapters eight and nine and see things um, start to unravel and the awful reign of his son, Abimelech. And chapter six begins, as we've come to expect, with the foreboding words, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And the power of Midian was oppressive. 
In fact, we're told in grim detail, more detail than we've been given before, what life was like under these oppressors. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. Not a living thing was spared. The land was completely ravaged year after year after year. Feel the devastation and the difficulty. Verse 7, the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian. And verse 8, just as he had in chapter 4 with Deborah, God spoke to them. He sent them a prophet. Verse 8, the prophet announces, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. If the Israelites were in any doubt as to why they were suffering under the hand of Midian, God makes it very clear. It's the verbs again, isn't it? God has brought up, rescued, delivered, driven out, gave, spoken. And Israel? Well, Israel have not listened. But did you notice? The prophet's speech here is missing a punchline. It feels like there should be a so at the end. You have not listened to me, so I will. But the so isn't there. The consequence of the not listening is not given. Why not? Well, because the so is what happens next. The so is what happens next. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abia's right, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. What is the punchline of the prophet's message? The consequence of Israel not listening to God? Condemnation? Being driven out themselves? Judgment? No. The answer is the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, verse 12. The answer is Gideon, a deliverer. We're going to see a few P's as we trace through these two chapters. And the first is simply picked. Picked. God has chosen to rescue his people and he has picked this Gideon to do it. But this great presser from off, this uh, mighty hider from the Midianites, might not feel like a very good answer to this problem. He certainly doesn't think he is. So our second P is persuaded. God's deliverer is picked, and then he needs to be persuaded. 
in a conversation uh, reminiscent of God's calling of Moses, uh, God gives assurance after assurance that he is with Gideon and will save Israel through Gideon. Verse 14, verse 16. And Gideon gives counter block after counter block. Verse 13, verse 15. You've got the wrong bloke, God. And we can sympathise with Gideon's response. I mean, big picture, it must have been hard living under such brutality to think of God's presence with and power for his people as anything other than a very dim and distant memory. And small picture, Gideon the great presser doesn't look like much of a hero. But God is kind and God is gracious. And he answers Gideon's doubts with two altars in verses 17 to 32. God answers Gideon with two altars. Verse 17, and Gideon replied, if now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Uh, Gideon asks for a sign, for proof that his heavenly visit is the real deal. The angel of the Lord agrees. Uh, Gideon prepares and brings a meal. Verse 21, the angel of God consumes it. And suddenly Gideon's attitude completely changes. It's like the scales fall from before his eyes. Rightly or wrongly, Gideon has asked for a sign, for assurance, and God has kindly and graciously given it. Alas, sovereign Lord, Gideon cries in verse 22, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Peace, verse 23, God answers, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. And Gideon builds an altar to the Lord in verse 24. And so we're ready to go. God's people have turned away from him and not listened to his voice, but he has shown them mercy and sent them a deliverer. Gideon's fired up, persuaded of his task. He's ready to go. Let battle begin. But it seems that Gideon isn't quite ready yet. So we don't jump straight from verse 24 to verse 33. There's more work to be done. Because this new altar Gideon's built in verse 24, well, it isn't the only altar in his hometown of Ophrah. God has a special home assignment for Gideon before he can become Israel's deliverer. Gideon has been picked and he's been persuaded. Now he must be prepared. Now he must be prepared. And so the next verse, verse 25, that same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. You see, Gideon can't deliver Israel until he's delivered his own house and his own town. He cannot rid Israel from the evil without until he's cleansed them from the evil within. Because idolatry isn't just a, a something, someone out there kind of problem. It seeps into our churches, our homes, our hearts. It infects us all. Rarely do we give up God entirely to chase after something else. But don't we so often two-time him? We worship God, 
but we also worship our bank balances, striving to keep them in the best possible shape and only giving to God from what we have left. We worship God, but we also worship our bodies, putting so much of our energy into feeding, dressing, training them. We worship God, but we also worship our spouses and our families, or the spouses and families we wish we had. Gideon's going to have to deal with his dad's altar before he can deal with his nation's oppression. It must be Christ alone, not Christ and a little bit of Baal. Gideon cannot rid God's people from the evil without until he's cleansed them from the evil within. So Gideon is to take what was Baal's and replace it with what is God's. He's to build an altar to God precisely where his dad Joash's altar to Baal was, using the wood of the Asherah pole to offer his sacrifice to Yahweh. Gideon does what God commands, but verse 27, because he's afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. A huge hoo-ha follows the next morning, see verse 28. Shock and horror that Baal and Asherah have been trashed a tragic indictment to the spiritual condition of this town, at least, of God's people. Joash steps up in his son's defence, whether to save face or save his son's life or out of a genuine change of heart, we don't know. But what he says in verse 31 is pretty epic. And Gideon lands himself with a new name. Verse 32, Jeroboam, let Baal contend with him. Indeed. And so we're ready. With these two altars, we've seen that God's deliverer has been picked, persuaded and prepared. Let battle begin. And so, verse 33, Gideon gathers the troops. They cross the Jordan. And the next P, well, almost P, Gideon is empowered. Gideon is empowered. Verse 34, the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. God, by his spirit, comes upon this deliverer clothes him is the Hebrew word. Gideon has God's call, God's mission and God's power and he has the armies of Israel gathered behind him ready to fight. Let battle begin. But verse 36, you'll have seen it coming. If you've read the story before, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. We've gone from picked to persuaded, to prepared, to empowered. And suddenly we've gone back a stage. We're back to persuaded. Gideon seems to need persuading again. And yet his own words condemn him. As you have promised, he says, as you have said. There is no doubt here about what God has said. It's like in the garden with the serpent. Gideon knows exactly what God has said. This isn't an issue of clarity. God has made it very clear what he plans to do, his general and his Gideon specific will. The issue here is trust. Gideon is finding it hard to act on what God has said he will do. Just like Adam and Eve in that garden all those years earlier. 
And to be fair, this isn't a hypothetical trust. Gideon's been asked for. Trust that simply ticks the Christian box on the form. No. Gideon's been asked to face a huge army who've been oppressing his entire nation for seven years. Intellectual assent alone isn't going to cut it here. Gideon's trust will be seen by him doing something, which sounds ridiculous. It sounds doomed. So Gideon asks for just a little more proof to put his nervous heart at rest. He'll, uh, he'll put a little piece of wool on the ground, he'll go to bed, and the next day, if the morning dew is just on the fleece and not on the ground around it, he'll know that God will save Israel by his hand, as he has said. Verse 38, it happens. God does it, just as Gideon asked. But verse 39, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. Can't God do it in reverse, drywall, wet ground? Verse 39, of course he can. God graciously and kindly obliges. And what I find interesting is that God doesn't comment on Gideon's requests. He doesn't commend Gideon for this little test, but nor does he condemn him and refuse to do it. He just quietly, graciously, kindly does what Gideon asks. Gives him the peace of mind that he needs. Maybe you've known a kind, gentle response from God in your weakness, in your sin even. Maybe if you haven't yet, you will one day. Let's not judge Gideon more harshly than God seems to. One final thing to observe from this scene. Did you notice that God seems to have had a change of name? Alas, sovereign Lord, Gideon declared in verse 22. The Lord is peace, he names his altar in verse 24. But in verse 36, Gideon speaks to God, not the Lord. And in fact, he doesn't even address him by name. Isn't it all one and the same, you might think? Well, well, actually, Lord, written in little capital letters in our English Bibles, well, that's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3. But the word translated in our Hebrew Bibles as God, well, that's a more generic Hebrew word, Elohim which could be used of Yahweh or could be used of other gods. It's hard to trust a God that you don't know very well. Or the flip side, it's easier to put God to the test when you've let yourself forget who he really is. It's easier to put God to the test when you've let yourself forget who he really is. Maybe next time you feel tempted to test God's promises and care for you. Maybe start by reminding yourself of who he is and how he has already proved himself to you. Most of all, of course, in sending his son and raising him from the dead for you. But nevertheless, gracious and kind as God is, he answered weak, sinful Gideon's requests and gave Gideon the peace of mind he needed. Let battle begin. No, not quite yet. 
for seven, verse two, with Israel camped just up the hill from the Midianite army, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Gideon and this Israelite army are still not ready. Gideon has been picked and persuaded and prepared and empowered and persuaded again. And now he must be prepared again. And this time the whole Israelite nation must be prepared, not just Gideon's family and town. For it is essential that they understand who is doing the saving here. It is essential that they understand who is doing the saving here. And it is not them. You see, God knows the proud inclinations of their hearts, of all of our hearts, the ease with which we take credit for our successes and attribute our failures to others. That great act of service I did, that kind word I spoke, that talk I gave, that study I led, that meeting I checked, that wrong decision they made, the sin they didn't deal with, the failure to serve they committed. God knows the proud inclinations of their hearts the ease with which we take credit for our successes and attribute our failures to others. And so God announces two probably entirely arbitrary ways in which he's going to cut this army down to size. First, um, Gideon is to tell anyone who's scared to head home. Well, that gets rid of 22,000 out of the 32,000. Then Gideon is to tell them all to have a drink. And only those who get down on their knees and lap are allowed to be remain, are allowed to remain. That swiftly deals with another 9,700, leaving 300 men. Just 300 out of an original 32,000. There's staff cuts and there's staff cuts. I mean, is it really worth this 300 staying? It would be like trying to run a secondary school with a head teacher and one teaching assistant. But verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lacked, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. And so here we are. Around 40 verses after Israel first cried out to God, Gideon, his family and his people have been picked, persuaded, prepared, empowered, persuaded again, prepared again. They have an army that barely deserves a description army. They're standing on the hilltop. They're looking down on an enemy camp that verse 12 had settled in the valley, thick as locusts, and they are terrified. Who wouldn't be? But God has one final preparation for them before the battle begins. One final preparation. Verse nine. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. As instructed, Gideon goes. I wonder what he imagined he might find. Gideon and his servant arrived to hear one Midianite soldier recounting a dream to his mate. Verse 13. I had a dream. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded. 
this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hand. Sorry, what? It doesn't get much more providential than that. Of all the tents in the camp, of all the soldiers, of all the fevered dreams that night, God gifts Gideon with overhearing this one. A bread bun tumbles into the enemy camp, rolls to a stop at the edge of a tent, knocks over that tent and leads to the downfall of the entire camp like a set of dominoes. And the interpretation comes with the dream. This measly bread roll is the sword of Gideon. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hand. More faithful words from this Midianite soldier than anything we've yet heard from Gideon's mouth. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Finally, let battle begin. Gideon divides his 300 men into three companies of 100. He gives them trumpets and empty jars and they advance to the edge of the camp, blow their trumpets, smash their jars and shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And what happens next? Verse 21. While each Israelite man held his position round the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. That's it. While each Israelite man held his position, stood stock still, the Midianite army ran. They turned on each other with their swords, verse 22, and they fled. In a victory that surely meant to remind us of Jericho, this tiny little army merely blew, broke and shouted, and God gave them the victory. Israel won the battle without actually having a battle, without drawing a sword or releasing an arrow. God gave the victory into their open hands. The Lord, in his own strength, graciously saved his idolatrous people from their cruel Midianite enemies in spite of and through their weak and untrusting leader, Gideon. The Lord, in his own strength, saved his simple people from their cruel enemies in spite of and through their weak and untrusting leader, Gideon. And isn't that a pattern we see the whole way through the Bible? The Lord, in his own strength, saving his idol-loving people from cruel enemies, in spite of and through their weak and trusting leaders and their own weakfulness and sinfulness as a people. There's loads of places we could go to see that. But think of the great victories that God gave sinful Saul and sinful David late in their lives, despite their great earliest sin against their Philistine enemies. In 1 Samuel 14 for Saul, in 2 Samuel 21 for David. Or think of God's salvation of his people through weak, terrified, undercover Esther, Queen of Persia, as we've been thinking about as a youth group this term. Or think of the felling of the great Nebuchadnezzar 
through the weak words, witness and prayers of unimpressive Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Or think of God's great mercy upon Nineveh, despite Jonah's self-righteousness and lack of love. Isn't this a pattern we see the whole way through the Bible? The pattern of the Lord in his own strength, graciously saving his idol-loving people from their cruel enemies, in spite of and through their weak and untrusting leaders and their own weakness and sinfulness as a people. And of course, it's a pattern we see in the gospel. For Jesus was crucified in weakness, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4. What could be weaker than being killed as a common criminal on a cross? Publicly humiliated and abused, written off and deserted and hung out to die. Jesus was crucified in weakness. Isaiah, in his prophecy of the suffering servant, in chapter 53, writes, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. He was crucified in weakness. And if Gideon had reasons to fear, to doubt, to wonder whether God would really, could really do what he said he was going to do, didn't Jesus have so many more? We see the fear pour from him in tears of blood like sweat in Gethsemane in Luke 22 verse 44. Could Jesus face what he and the Father had planned that he would do? Could he bear to be separated from his father? Could he pay the price for our sin? And yet Jesus needed no persuading. Jesus did not ask for signs of God's assurance, for promises that God was with him, for proofs that God would really do what he had said he would do through him. Not my will, but yours be done, he prayed. Jesus didn't fall into doubt and distress. He didn't forget or he'll choose not to remember who his father was, what his name was. And Jesus needed no preparing, at least not in the sense of being purified from sin. The spirit came down upon him at his baptism. And that was it. An extraordinarily straight, extraordinarily steady trajectory towards the most extraordinary end. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Isaiah's suffering servant declares in chapter 50, verse 7. Because, of course, Jesus did not save us in spite of his weakness and sin. He saved us because he had no sin and through his weakness. He saved us because he had no sin and through his weakness. 
He was the pure, perfect, spotless sacrifice, the innocent lamb led to the slaughter, the only perfect, righteous, obedient person to ever have lived. He did not save us despite being a weak human. He saved us by becoming a weak human. He saved us by taking on our human form so that he could live his life and give up his life as our representative. For he, being in very nature God, Paul writes in Philippians 2 verse 6, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. And now God the Father has exalted him on high because of his single-minded trust and obedience. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4 continues, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. And he calls us too to be weak. Like Paul, we must learn that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Surely, the writer of Hebrews 11 had Gideon in mind, in his little paragraph on the judges and the kings, as he wrote in verse 34, of those whose weakness was turned to strength. We are weak. We are not strong. We need not be strong, for we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved by the power of God, so that no one can boast. And Christ has saved us in and through his weakness. He knows what it is to be weak. He took on our weakness. Though he was God, the eternal son, he became human taking on skin that could be bruised, a stomach that could grow empty, eyes that could shed tears. Our saviour knows what it is to be weak because he became weak. And so he can sympathise with us in our weakness. We have one who can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Hebrews 5. Verse 2. We can come to him, weak as we are. He will not turn us away. He will not tell us to do better. He will not laugh at, scorn, or condemn us. He will simply love us. And he will use us. For though in ourselves we are weak, in him we are strong. We may not understand why he's left us weak. We may not understand why he's made us weak, but we know. We know it from Gideon's story. We know it from time and again in scripture. He loves to use weak people to fulfill his purposes. If we're feeling weak, it's far more likely that we're where God wants us than when we're feeling strong. When we're feeling weak, it's far more likely that we're where God wants us than when we're feeling strong. What does that mean this week? What will it mean tomorrow morning, 
four o'clock on Wednesday afternoon. It means we can pray. What apparently weaker way to have an impact on the world could God possibly have invented than prayer? I so easily think prayer is just the most useless thing. Action is needed. Things need to be done. No. Get down on our knees and pray. And we can know that God will work in extraordinary ways through our weak, weak prayers. We can pray. We can pause. We can pause our activism. It's easy to believe this on Sunday, but on Monday, switch back into survival of the fittest, proving myself, Darwinianism, activism. What must I do next? What must I do today? What can I do with my life? We don't need to live like that. We can accept what we cannot do. We can pause our activism, our need to be needed. And we can choose what is better, like Mary, knowing that it doesn't fall on our shoulders to fix ourselves, the world, anyone else, or anything. We can pray, we can pause, and we can plod. Because we are weak and he is strong, we can plod, we can persevere, we can keep going. When it doesn't look like things are working, when we can't see any fruit, a way out, hope, when our sin is still weighing us down, when Satan still seems to be winning, we can plot, we can keep going, we can keep trusting, walking in faith. Because the outcome doesn't depend on us and our strength. And we have a God who is strong when we are weak. And so we can plot, we can keep persevering day after day until we meet him in glory, for his will will be done. Let me pray. Father, we are sorry that we think we are strong, that we try to be strong, that we think we must be strong. We thank you so much that though we are weak, you have saved us through sending us a weak saviour who became human and died. Help us in our weakness to look to him. Amen.